This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Introduction Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew thirteen, twenty-four through 30 This passage deals with the kingdom of God. It raises one of the most important issues in human thought, the issue of continuity versus discontinuity. The discontinuity in this passage is the final judgment. Will the owner of the field, God, allow the servants, angels, to tear out the tares, evil men, before the harvest date, the end of time? The answer is no. The owner insists that the tares be left alone until both wheat and tares have fully matured and the harvest day has come. God's plan for history involves both continuity and discontinuity. His continuity is His grace. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Psalm 145, 8 The phrase, slow to anger, is crucial. Eventually, He brings judgment, but only after time passes. But judgment eventually comes to the wicked. The Lord preserveth all them that love Him, but all the wicked will He destroy. Psalm 145.20 God announced the following to Moses. After Moses had completed his task of carving the Ten Commandments into two stones, and the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. Exodus 34, 5-7 The Lord suffers long, in this case, three or four generations. This is exactly what God had told Abraham concerning the conquest of the promised land. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Genesis fifteen sixteen. In the fourth generation, after they become subservient to Egypt, the Israelites would return. Moses' generation was the fourth after Jacob came down to Egypt. Levi, Kohath, Amram, Moses. Exodus six sixteen eighteen and 20. 
they came to the edge of the land, but drew back in fear. Joshua's generation conquered it. Why the delay in judging the Amorites? Their iniquity was not yet full. God gave them time to fill it up. He gave them continuity. Then, in Joshua's day, he gave them discontinuity. Judgment came at last. So it is with the history of man. God extends time to all men. Then, at the final day, or at the death of each person, judgment comes. Judgment day confirms eternal life to the regenerate, and the second death, Revelation twenty fourteen, to the unregenerate. Continuity is broken by discontinuity. Common Grace If you want a four-word summary of this book, here it is. Common Grace is Continuity. It is also a prelude to judgment. The concept of common grace is seldom discussed outside of Calvinistic circles, although all Christian theologies must eventually come to grips with the issues underlying the debate over common grace. The phrase was employed by colonial American Puritans. I came across it on several occasions when I was doing research on the colonial Puritans' economic doctrines and economic experiments. The concept goes back at least to John Calvin's writings. Before venturing into the forest of theological debate, let me state what I believe is the meaning of the word grace. The Bible uses the idea in several ways, but the central meaning of grace is this, a gift given to God's creatures on the basis, first, of His favor to His Son, Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, and second, on the basis of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Grace is not strictly unmerited, for Christ merits every gift. But in terms of the merit of the creation, merit deserved by a creature because of its mere creaturehood, there is none. In short, when we speak of any aspect of the creation, other than the incarnate Jesus Christ, grace is defined as an unmerited gift. The essence of grace is conveyed in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Special grace is a phrase used by theologians to, to describe the gift of eternal salvation. Paul writes, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He also writes, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 God selects those on whom he will have mercy. Romans 9.18 He has chosen these people to be recipients of his gift of eternal life. And he chose them before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4-6 But there is another kind of grace, and it is misunderstood. Common grace is equally a gift of God to his creatures but it is distinguished from special grace in a number of crucial ways. The key verse that describes two kinds of grace is 1 Timothy 4.10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. This verse unquestionably states that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, meaning all people. Yet the Bible does not teach universalism meaning the ethical redemption of all men, that are saved and lost throughout eternity, Revelation 20.14. So what does this verse mean? 
It means simply that Christ died for all men, giving unmerited gifts to all men in time and on earth. Some people go to eternal destruction, and others are resurrected to life, to live with Christ eternally. But all men have at least the unmerited gift of life, at least for a time. There are therefore two kinds of salvation, special, eternal, and temporal, earthly. A debate has gone on for close to a century within Calvinistic circles concerning the nature and reality of common grace. I hope that this little book will contribute some acceptable answers to the people of God, though I have little hope of convincing those who have been involved in this debate for 60 years. Because of the confusion associated with the term common grace, let me offer James Jordan's description of it. Common grace is the equivalent of the crumbs that fall from the master's table that the dogs eat. This is how the Canaanite woman described her request of healing by Jesus. And Jesus healed her daughter because of her understanding and faith. Matthew fifteen twenty-seven through 28 The prime loaf, however, is reserved for those who respond in faith to the gospel and who then persevere in this faith to the end of their earthly lives. Matthew 13, 8 and 23 Background of the debate. In 1924, the Christian Reformed Church debated the subject of common grace, and the decision of the Synod led to a major division within the ranks of the denomination which has yet to be healed. The debate was of considerable interest to Dutch Calvinists on both sides of the Atlantic, although traditional American Calvinists were hardly aware of the issue, and Armenian churches were and are still completely unaware of it. Herman Hoeksema, who was perhaps the most brilliant systematic theologian in America in this century, left the Christian Reformed Church to form the Protestant Reformed Church. He and his followers were convinced that, contrary to the decision of the CREC, there is no such thing as common grace. The doctrine of common grace, as formulated in the disputed three points of the Christian Reformed Church in 1924, asserts the following. Number 1. Concerning the favorable attitude of God toward mankind in general, and not only toward the elect. The Synod declares that according to Scripture and the Confession, it is certain that, besides the saving grace of God bestowed only upon those chosen to eternal life, there is also a certain favor or grace of God manifested to His creatures in general. Number 2. Concerning the restraint of sin in the life of the individual and of society, the Synod declares that according to Scripture and the Confession, there is, there is such a restraint of sin. Number 3. Concerning the performance of so-called civic righteousness by the unregenerate, the Synod declares that according to Scripture and the Confession, the unregenerate, although incapable of any saving good, Canons of Dort 3, 4, 3, can perform such civic good. These principles can serve as a starting point for a discussion of common grace. The serious Christian, eventually, will be faced with the problem of explaining the good once he faces the biblical doctrine of evil. James 1.17 informs us that all good gifts are from God. The same point is made in Deuteronomy 8.18. It is clear that the unregenerate are the beneficiaries of God's gifts. None of the participants to the, the debate denies the existence of the gifts. What is denied by the Protestant Reformed critics is that these gifts imply the favor of God, as far as the unregenerate are concerned. 
they categorically deny the first point of the original three points. For the moment, let us refrain from using the word grace. Instead, let us limit ourselves to the word gift. The existence of gifts from God raises a whole series of questions. Does a gift from God imply his favor? Does an unregenerate man possess the power to do good? Does the existence of good behavior on the part of the unbeliever deny the doctrine of total depravity? Does history reveal a progressive separation between saved and lost? Would such a separation necessarily lead to the triumph of the unregenerate? Is there a common ground intellectually between Christians and non-Christians? Can Christians and non-Christians cooperate successfully in certain areas? Do God's gifts increase or decrease over time? Will the cultural mandate, Dominion Covenant, of Genesis 1.28 be fulfilled? This little book is my attempt to provide preliminary answers to these questions. Challenging Van Til This book is basically a refutation of Professor Cornelius Van Til's book, Common Grace and the Gospel, a compilation of his essays on common grace. It is without question the worst book he ever wrote. It is also one of the most confusing books he ever wrote, given the relative simplicity of the topic. It was not as though he was trying to analyze and refute the arcane mental meanderings of some dead German theologian. It is possible to write a clear book on common grace. It is not that Van Til's book is not filled with many important insights into many philosophical and theological problems. The trouble is, these insights are found in any of a dozen other of his books. The vast bulk of these insights really did not belong in Common Grace in the Gospel. If he had removed them, he would have spared us a lot of time and trouble, not to mention a lot of extra paper, and it possibly would have spared us several of his mistakes. But probably not. Van Til has referred to himself as a stubborn Dutchman. He clings to his favorite mistakes with the same fervency that he clings to his favorite truths. This raises a much-neglected point. Van Til is an enigma to those of us who studied under him or who have struggled through his books. His books are always filled with brilliant insights, but it is very difficult to remember where any single insight appeared. They are scattered like loose diamonds throughout his writings, but they never seem to fit in any particular slot. Any given insight might just as well be in any of his books, or all of them. In fact, it may be in all of them. They are not systematically placed brilliant insights. They are just brilliant. He makes good use from them, too. He repeats the same ones in many of his books. No use throwing this away after only one time. It's almost like new. I'll use it again. The man is clearly Dutch. His most effective critical arguments sound the same in every book. Randomly pick up a coverless Van Til book and start reading. You may not be sure from the development of the arguments just what the book is about, or who it is intended to refute. His books all wind up talking about the same three dozen themes. Or is it four dozen? Just keep reading. You will probably find his favorite Greeks, Plato, who struggled unsuccessfully to reconcile Parmenides and Heraclides. But only rarely will you find a footnote to one of their primary source documents. Kant's name will be there too, but only in a four-page string of quotations from a book written in 1916 or 1932, 
by a scholar you have never heard of. No direct citations for Kant? Hardly ever. Phenomenal. He will refer to a Bible verse occasionally, but the rarest diamond of all is a page of detailed Bible exposition. You will learn about univocal and equivocal reasoning. Continuity will be challenging discontinuity. Rationalism will be doing endless battle with irrationalism. The one will be smothering the many, whenever the many aren't overwhelming the one. These last four conflicts are, if I understand him correctly, all variations of essentially the same intellectual problem. Watch for his analogies. Rationalism and irrationalism will be taking in each other's washing for a living. There will be a chain of being lying around somewhere, probably right next to the infinitely long cord that the beads with no holes are supposed to decorate. Some child will be trying to slap her father's face while sitting on his lap, and someone out in the garage will be sharpening a buzz saw that is set at the wrong angle. Warning. If you don't watch your step, you could trip over the full bucket problem. And so it goes, book after book. What memorable analogies. But where did I read the one about the ladder of water rising out of the water to the water above? Which bad argument of which philosopher did that one wash away? What we need is a five-inch laser disc hooked to a Sony. Scratch that. A Philips Dutch laser disc player with a microchip with all of his works on the disc plus a computer program that will search every phrase and pull the one we want onto the screen in three seconds. The technology exists. The market for his works doesn't. Sad. Puzzling. F. A. Hayek says that great scholarly minds come in two types. There are system builders whose minds encompass huge amounts of seemingly disparate information and then pull them into a coherent whole. There are also those who Hayek calls puzzlers. These men take the great systems, break them into scattered sections, and start pointing out the problems with every single part, often from a perspective that few people have thought of and fewer yet can follow. Van Til is a classic puzzler, in non-brute fact. He built his epistemology, quite frankly, in terms of his view that all man's attempts to build totally comprehensive systems are doomed to failure that all human thought is the exercise of puzzling. God is infinite. Man is finite. Man's mind will never comprehend, surround, encircle God. Man's mind will therefore never encompass any aspect of the creation, for every atom is related to God, and this brings God back into the picture. The atom, too, is incomprehensible by man's finite mind. But God comprehends himself and his creation, so we must go to God's word to begin locating the proper ways to puzzle through any problem. As the person who keeps turning a blade of grass over and over, getting more knowledge of it each time, but never seeing both sides at once, so is man's ability to observe and think. Van Til takes any system you hand him, and he breaks it down into its component parts, turning the pieces over and over in his mind, finding out what it is and how it works. The problem is, he never puts the pieces back together. He just leaves them scattered around the floor. Next, on the floor, in pieces, they all look pretty much alike. Go ahead. Pick up that scrap of Barthianism. The one over there. No, no, the other one. Holy other. Doesn't it resemble a fragment of Kant? Or is it more like Heraclitus? 
or could it really be a direct descendant of Plato? One thing you will recognize for sure, it's humanism. The wrong questions. Van Til has only a finite number of questions to ask about each system, and some are his special favorites. These are the ones he usually asks. Of course, he has lots more in reserve. The trouble is, he sometimes asks less appropriate questions, just because he likes his favorites so much. Common grace in the gospel suffers from this flaw. Other questions should have been asked, but he is determined to ask the questions he wants to ask, and others just will not do, even better ones. In this book, I try to ask better questions. Why attack Van Til? Because he is the best. If some theological non-entity had written common grace in the gospel, it would not matter if anyone replied to him. But it matters with Van Til. He is the man who has reconstructed Christian philosophy in our time, by far the most important Christian philosopher of all time. His dissecting and puzzling have cut apart all the alternative systems. He has knocked all the Humpty Dumpties off their respective walls. But when he goes in to try to put a case of biblical eggs in their place, he sometimes slips in the goo. He simply slipped up or fell down with common grace in the gospel. So what is wrong with his book on common grace? First, it is cluttered up with extraneous material. The book is filled with questions concerning Platonic reasoning, Roman Catholic apologetics, and other specialized philosophical topics. But these topics are not the heart of the debate over common grace. As with everything else Van Til writes about, he can use them to illustrate philosophical topics, but in this case, this overemphasis on philosophy misleads the reader. It steers him away from the key issue. This is my second and major criticism. What the common grace debate is about, above all, is history. The issue of common grace asks, what is the history of the saved and the lost in God's scheme of things? Where are men headed and why? We find the answer right where Van Til always says we must search for every philosophical answer, in ethics. In short, common grace is about eschatology. And it is here that Van Til's stubborn Dutchmanship is rock hard. He will not budge. He is an amillennialist. Worse, he is, he is an undeclared amillennialist. He builds his whole theory of common grace in terms of his hidden eschatology probably never realizing the extent to which his seemingly philosophical exposition is in fact structured by his assumptions concerning eschatology. So forget about Plato. Forget about St. Thomas Aquinas. Forget about univocal versus equivocal reasoning. Keep your eye on his prophetic chart. If it is wrong, then the whole book is wrong. And just to get my position straight right from the beginning, let me say this. His prophecy chart is wrong. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright shall deliver them, but transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation shall perish, and the hope of unjust men perisheth. The righteous is delivered out of trouble, and the wicked cometh in his stead. Proverbs 11, 5-8 the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. 
Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.